God's Word. This morning we'll be in Genesis chapter 49, verses 1 through 28. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity, preeminent in power, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. Oh, my glory, be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you, your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion. And as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and the vesture of his blood of, of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea and he shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that a resting place was good and that the land was pleasant, so he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper at the path that bites at the horse's heels so that the rider falls backward. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food will be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attack him and shot at him and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings of heaven from above. Blessings of the deep that crouches beneath. Blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessing of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel, and what their father said to them as he blessed them blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. In the living room at my house, there's a book shelf, a bookcase. I don't know if some of you guys have been in my house, if you've noticed it or not, but it's a, a unique bookcase. It has, uh, each shelf is enclosed with a front, a glass 
panes so that you can see inside of it. And each front you can lift up, it swings up, and then it slides in over the top of that shelf so that you can access whatever's on this shelf without the, the door coming down on your fingers or whatnot. What you can't tell, if that's not interesting enough, what you can't tell by just looking at it is the, the whole shelf is actually modular. Each shelf is its own unit. You could take the top off, the top and the bottom, the legs are their own units as well, and so you can mix and match it however you'd like. You can organize it differently, and if you had multiple shelves, you could make one taller and one shorter and so on, but you can't actually get more of these units, uh, more of these shelves, because the bookcase was bought by my great-grandfather decades ago. In fact, it was my great-grandfather's, and then I remember as a child when it came to be in my parents' house, uh, I always liked it, I always admired it the most. It had all of the old books in it, right? That's where my parents put the, the old and dusty books with the faded covers, you know? And I remember thinking that the, the, the way that the shelf worked was so unique and so interesting. And then it has come now to be in my house. I love this bookcase. I love that it's in my living room. Have you ever stopped to think about what your kids or your grandkids or your great-grandkids will inherit from you? And I don't mean possessions. I don't mean bookcases. I mean I love that bookcase, but what will they inherit? What will come down to them because of who you are and how you live your life today? You may not realize it, but, but whether you're attempting to or not, whether you want to or not, you are passing something down to them right now. You have been passing something down to them already. Listen, even if you don't yet have kids, you are preparing yourself to pass something down. Even if you don't yet have kids, you may be passing things on to other people in your family, in the family of God, in your circle of relationships. And in our text, as Jacob is nearing his death, he gathers his sons together and he blesses them all. And he's telling them what they will inherit. It's sort of a a last will and testament, right? Or whatever. But he doesn't just tell them what they're going to inherit from him, the blessing that they're going to get from him. He's actually telling them what they will give to future generations, right? Jacob's blessing on his sons, it's prophetic. Verse 1 says that what he's going to tell them is, quote, what shall happen to you in days to come? Not you as in just Reuben or Levi or whoever, but those who will follow from them. Jacob's vision, Jacob's uh, 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 horizon for this blessing is much, much farther than just a generation or two generations. And at the end of verse 28, he says that this is, this is about the 12 tribes. From these men come these 12 tribes. So if you're, if you're the people of Israel marching out of Egypt towards the promised land, towards the promised inheritance, and you're reading the book of Genesis as Moses has written it down. This is what you're reading. You're going, I am of Reuben. I am of Dan. I am of Levi. This is what my great, 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 great grandfather, Jacob, the Jacob, the Israel, said. Now, certainly, these 12 men and 
These 12 brothers have a unique role in Israelite and in redemptive history, in the history of the people of God, but the, the basic principle is the same in, in, as it is now in our families today as well as in the family of God today. What will be the generational inheritance of your life? That's the question I want you to consider this morning. If you've never considered it before, what will be the generational inheritance of your life? And it's never too early to think about this, is it? Right? Ask the, ask the guy who's, you know, uh, later in life and realizes, I've not saved enough for retirement. It's never too early, he'll tell you, it's never too early to start thinking about that. Because it's the decisions you make today that will matter for generations to come. Kids, even you, even you, now, today, the decisions that you make are setting a course and setting a path for what's to come. So I want to look at some different kinds of inheritances that we can leave using these men as examples for us. First, I want to talk about is this. How can you leave a bad inheritance? I think it's important for us to know how to leave a bad inheritance so that we can avoid those mistakes. Am I right? Bad character has a tendency to get passed down or to create consequences for future generations, Exodus 20, verse 5, is sobering. Moses, speaking to these 12 tribes, says this, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, as, that is, false gods. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. The point being here that when parents don't serve God, that when parents don't serve the Lord and instead turn and serve other gods, other idols, serve themselves instead, that it has an effect on their children, not just their children, but their children's children and their children's children's children. That there tends to be this way in which our kids improve, if you will, on our sinfulness. The things, the sins that we stumble into, they turn out to become masters of. We need to be aware of that. And so here are some examples for us. First, we see Reuben. Reuben is preeminent. He is the firstborn son. He is the one who ought to be given the birthright and blessing of his father, right? He is in ancient Near Eastern culture, the very strength of his dad. But he's unstable as water. Unstable as water. What does that mean? The word connotes pride and presumption. The root for the Hebrew word that's translated unstable as water is translated elsewhere in the Old Testament as reckless. An adjective, by the way, that is nowhere in the Bible attributed to God and is everywhere seen as a negative quality. There is nothing good about being reckless in the Bible. This character quality is typified in one particular instant, one particular incident in Reuben's life, though we can assume that Reuben is just this way based on his father's words. But it's most seen in this moment, if you remember, when Reuben sleeps with one of his dad's concubines, with one of his dad's wives. You see, his pride carries him away to try to take up his father's mantle prematurely. And it shows that he lacks the maturity and character to take it up ever. That in going in and sleeping with his wife, what he's saying is, I will take my birthright, 
my uh, uh, birthright of leadership of this family, I will take it early. Just as David's son attempted to do as well later in the history of Israel. In thinking that he is a big man, he reveals that he's just a child. It is power turned into presumption, dignity turned into double-mindedness. Rather than trusting God and obeying, he vacillates in an attempt to secure the blessing. Reuben is what happens when you give power to an unprincipled man. Power in the hand of an unprincipled man is unstable as water. It's the person who so wants to hold on to their influence or their position to defend it, to make sure they never lose it, that they, they fail to hold firm to what they've always known God's Word to be teaching, right? It's the parent who wants their kid to like them so much that they don't stick to the clear boundaries of God's Word that the kid needs, and they end up doing more harm than good. It's the father who thinks that since he is the head of the house, as the Bible says, then I can simply impose my will and run over everyone else here. I carry the weight of the responsibility and I'm justified to take liberties for myself. That is Reuben. The next example we're given is Simeon and Levi, and these two are lumped together. They're lumped together because they share a common character, and they're lumped together because they share a common incident in which that character is seen. Do you remember? When their sister is raped, they went far beyond defending her or bringing justice to the situation. And so, Jacob says, your swords are weapons of violence. It's not, listen, and I want to be clear on this, it's not that their anger was the problem. They ought to have been angry. As one author puts it, the never-angered person is morally deficient. Okay? I want you to hear this. The never-angered person is morally deficient. The slow-to-anger person is the virtuous one. He is better able to calm disputes and listen well, but also opposes injustice and tyranny. Simeon and Levi's swords were weapons of violence rather than weapons of defense. In their fight, they did not have those who, love, who they love behind them, but only those whom they hated in front of them. And there's a big difference between those two. You must understand those categories. They let their anger turn to rage and vengeance, and then if you remember the story, what's even worse, they allow it to enrich themselves. In their defense of their sister, they go and they slaughter all the men of the town, and then, well, I guess all the men are gone, and who's going to take all their possessions and their wives and their children? I suppose we will. I mean, don't want to leave all these riches just sitting here, right? We ask the question, is, are they really for defending their sister or are they just for meeting whatever thing that they want in their own heart? What are the consequences? The only Reubenites mentioned in the rest of the Bible are two men. Two men who during the wandering out of the wilderness with Moses, helped to lead a rebellion against Moses. And the, what happens to them is that they and their whole families are literally swallowed up by the earth, it says. God causes the earth to open up, and all of them and their families and all their possessions fall into that pit. It's the only two Reubenites we hear from the rest of the story, the rest of the Bible. Simeon and Levi, what are their fates? Their tribes are divided, dispersed, because too many of them in one place creates problems. And so the Levites become, oddly enough, God's priests, and they're spread out throughout all of Israel. They're given 48 cities throughout all of Israel to live in. But the tribe does not congregate in one place, because you get too many Simeonites and Levites in one place, and they start, they start going crazy. They decide, well, we're going to go attack someone. 
And what happens to the Simeonites? I didn't realize this until I was studying this passage, but they are actually dispersed throughout Judah. Judah, it says, is given too large of a territory in the promised land for them to fill. And so God spreads the Simeonites out around. And so Judah actually becomes a buffer. Judah actually wraps itself around Simeon on all borders to make sure that Simeonites don't go attacking other people for no reason. So... What's that mean for us? What can we learn from this bad example? If you want to lay waste to your children and to your grandchildren, if you don't care about the generations that will follow you, if you'd like to destroy them, and if you'd like to head them towards a cliff, here's what you do. You be arrogant and prideful, like Simeon. You live recklessly for your own pleasures, like Simeon. In your arrogance and pride, you pretend that you deserve that. You pretend it's okay. You give yourself over to drunkenness. You flirt with things like pornography and that coworker while you're at it. You open the door to marital unfaithfulness, and you will destroy your family. Fail to have self-control like Simeon and Levi, and add to that grabbing at greediness. Ooh, care about your possessions above all other things. Then you will lay waste to your children and your grandchildren. Allow your anger to run free. Grab at ill-gotten gain. Only think about your pocketbook. Excuse what you do by pointing fingers at what others have done. I think the internet calls all of this swallowing the red pill, right? So that's how to leave a bad inheritance. Well, how do we leave an insignificant inheritance? We've got six brothers here, plus I'm going to throw Benjamin into this group, in which their inheritance is so-so. It's obscure and a little bit insignificant. Now, I'm sure we could do a long nerd conversation over each one of these brothers and, you know, where in our understanding of history and in the Bible that these things happen, you know, and some things we can track down pretty easy. Zebulun, for instance, in verse 13 says that they'll dwell by the shore, and sure enough, the tribe of Zebulun is given an inheritance in the promised land that's by the shore. And so we see some of these things, and we could track all those down, but but I think that many of those details are, are somewhat obscure and, and perhaps insignificant to us uh, in some ways, or, or less significant, I should say, to us in some ways today. Now, I could be taking a bit too much liberty with the text here, and if that's the case, I ask for your grace on me, but I do want to make an application. We can often find ourselves living like one of these brothers. And we can be tempted to think something like this. We can be tempted to think something like, well, at least I'm not as bad as Reuben. I never slept with my father's wife. At least I'm not as crazy as Simeon and Levi. I don't have their issues. At least I'm a better father than my father was. At least I'm a better mother than my mother was. And that's good enough, right? But really, what we're doing is being passive parents. And listen, the world will applaud you for being a decent person who never utters the truth of the gospel. The world will applaud you for being a decent person who never actively works for the Lord who never puts it on the line for the sake of Christ. We fail to recognize that Satan plays both sides of this equation. Satan is behind Reuben and Simeon and Levi, but he's also behind pacifying us because of Reuben and Simeon and Levi. If Satan can't get us to do something really stupid, his next best trick is to pacify us, especially you fathers. Especially you fathers. 
He wants to make men inert. All of these brothers sat by while Joseph was sold into slavery. Listen, the next worst thing to doing something wrong is doing nothing at all, especially when you have the power to do it. Don't be lulled to sleep. Jesus didn't merely not sin. No, he turned his face to Jerusalem and he marched to the cross. He was not passive. Parents, it's not enough to say, well, at least we stayed married. Husbands, are to actively love wives sacrificially. Wives really are to respect and submit to their husbands. Parents, it's not enough to say, well, we went to work so that we could pay for whatever for our kids. No, you really are to take up responsibility to disciple and educate your children. Friends, don't sleep on this lest fall comes and we have no idea what we will be harvesting. How to leave a good inheritance. How do we leave a good inheritance? You say, well, but what if I've received a bad or insignificant inheritance? What if I have not received much from my parents that I could build on and that I could give to my kids? What if I've already messed it up? What if I've already squandered so much? What if I got a late start on all of this? Well, friends, Judah gives us hope, does he not? I want to give you a quick reminder of Judah's life story. Judah, he led the charge on selling Joseph into slavery. He lied to his father. He cheated his daughter-in-law. Then he slept with his daughter-in-law, and then he tried to unjustly kill his daughter-in-law. He didn't have a very good track record there. If you've got a worse track record than Judah, I'd be interested to chat with you. But Judah repents. Genesis 37, and God really does change him, and he takes care of Tamar, his daughter-in-law, and he tells the truth to Joseph, and he offers his own life for Benjamin. There's redemption for Judah, because he turns to the Lord, because he turns to the God of his father Jacob. But it takes a willingness to sacrifice self. The Redeemer becomes a ruler in Judah. He is the one who sold his brother Joseph into slavery, but whom God convicts and brings to repentance and later offers himself in exchange for Benjamin. To to him, Jacob gives authority and rulership. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting that the one who offers himself as a sacrifice is the one Jacob gives authority to. It's Judah who is foretold that he is to be king over his brothers. It's Judah to whom the scepter, that mark of rulership in the Bible, shall not depart, not just of his brothers, but over the obedience of all the peoples, it says. And this is the consistent pattern in God's economy. The one who is willing to sacrifice himself is blessed with the right to rule. And those who rule are called to sacrifice themselves for those whom they are over. Fathers, this is the distinguishing mark of fatherhood. A sacrifice. If you want to change the family inheritance, it will take tremendous sacrifice. You'll have to put away your sins. You'll have to put away the sins that you've inherited from your father and from your grandfather. And that's going to be hard. More than that, 
You have to give up things. You have to give up things that others enjoy who have been given a better inheritance because you've got to do double work to get rid of the things that you need to get rid of. It's hard work. You've got catching up to do like that man I was talking about who is nearing retirement and realizes he, doesn't, he hasn't saved enough. While all of his friends are going on vacation, he's tucking money away in his retirement fund. Satan's ploy. One of Satan's ploys is to leave you sitting on the bench for the rest of your life, to keep you ever blaming your father, to keep you ever in the shame of the things that you did, of the time you squandered, of the the opportunities that you've missed, and the cycle continues. But it doesn't have to. What would it mean, parents, for your kids over the next three or five or ten years to see your lives transformed as you repent and you trust God and you submit to His Word? What would it mean Even if your kids are grown and are out of the house, what would it mean over the next three or five or ten years for them to see that transformation happen in your life? How would it shape them to see the miraculous work of the Spirit transforming someone firsthand? What issues are you figuring out or overcoming right now that they won't have to later because you did the dirty work today? Then there are those like Joseph. You know, it's wonderful when someone transforms their lives, and we celebrate that in the church, don't we? When someone changes their family history, when, when uh, they're headed this direction, and then God moves them and, and takes them in that direction, and that's a wonderful thing, and, and we can admire that, but sometimes we admire that to the detriment of our own selves because we fail to recognize the miraculous, preserving power of those who are faithful. We fail to recognize how their kids enjoy the bounty of what they have continually and consistently saved up in the Lord. You see, in Joseph, what we see is the faithful son is made to be the fruitful son. He is the son who most clearly represents who Israel ought to be. Joseph is pictured as faithful to God and faithful to his father throughout the whole story of Genesis. And Joseph, it says he'll be blessed. He'll be blessed to be fruitful, just as in the garden. He's seen as a garden, even in these Passages, even in verse 22, right? With branches, so fruitful branches that go over the wall. But listen, the garden, it's under attack. It's under attack by archers and it's under attack by serpents. He's faithful through this barrage. And he's rewarded. with blessings that pile up to eternal mountains. The faithful son is given a double portion, and we should take note of that. I remember hearing about a a famous pastor and scholar. uh, He was telling a story about his father, and he talked about the, the conversations that they would have as he was growing up. He talked about the books that he would borrow from his dad. He talked about the ministry and the life that he saw firsthand displayed before him through his father, This famous and influential scholar who's had a massive impact on Christianity today. And then you find out that his father was was just a simple pastor of a small church. No one's ever heard about. With just a handful of people. A few dozen, maybe. For decades, he labored pastoring that church. And listen, we applaud it in retrospect, and we applaud the faithfulness of the, of the Father and how God, has had a, how God has honored that and, has, and what God has done through His ministry, even if it's a ministry that no one ever heard of or that no one ever would have heard of if it wasn't for His Son. But I wonder how often He struggled. Thinking from Sunday to Sunday, 
that his labor was in vain, that it was of little impact to the kingdom. I wonder how many times Satan came whispering into his, his ear before a sermon or before a pastoral counseling session, or before he came home from a long day at the office where he didn't get done everything he wanted to get done and he felt like he was a failure because his ministry is insignificant. How many times Satan came whispering in his ear, give up, it's not worth it. Give in, it's not worth it. I wonder what the kingdom of God and the people of God would have lost if some guy that you have never heard of didn't get up every single morning and get on his knees, pray for his children, pray for his family, pray for his church, read God's word, live faithfully, and keep going to work. And it's not just men. It's not just fathers. Though I think that we see the unique influence of the father on the children in the pages of Scripture. It's not just fathers and it's not just parents. I, I think of 2 Timothy 1.5 where it says this, it, Paul is writing to Timothy and he says, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. Timothy, whose father was an unbeliever, but whose mother and grandmother consistently lived out and spoke the truth of the gospel before him. And here he is pastoring a church. Here he is on missionary journeys with Paul. Here he is. And I wonder, I wonder if it wasn't until heaven that Lois is sitting there and reads these words that are forever put in God's holy Bible. I wonder if it isn't until heaven that she realizes the impact of her faith on her grandson. and on you and me 2,000 years later. Listen, we should take note, though, as well, at the cost, the cost of what it, what it costs to stay faithful. When you are fruitful and faithful, Satan will send his archers to bitterly attack you and to shoot all of his flaming arrows. He's not dumb. He's not dumb. He knows what value there is there, and he wants to ruin it. He knows that you can't keep your bow ready all the time. He knows that your arms aren't that agile. They will tire. He wants your feet to slip. He wants you to fall over that wall. He knows that what takes a long time to save up takes only a day to squander. Where does this kind of faithfulness start? You see, many years later, as these descendants, the descendants of these men are entering into that inheritance, that inheritance promised to Abraham, as Joshua leads them into the promised land, here's what Joshua says after having done that. The famous line at the end of the book of Joshua, he says this, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served and serve the Lord. Choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That is what we must declare, parents. That is what we must declare for our own families. Listen, the most important thing that you can do for your kids is not serving them and giving them everything they could want. The most important thing that you can do for them is to serve the Lord and give them Jesus. That is an inheritance that will never spoil, fade, or perish. It's not having a family that you know, the best thing you can give to them isn't having a family that conforms to their every activity that they want to do, but conforming them to a family that is actively following Christ. As I grow older, there's this sort of out-of-body experience that has increased 
uh, I'll say or I'll do something, maybe you've experienced this, I'll say or I'll do something, uh, and then I'm struck with this realization that what I just said or what I just did is exactly what my dad would say or do. You know what I'm talking about? You say something and then you're like, and you look in the mirror and you're like, I see my father, right? And then for me, if you met my dad, I look in the mirror and I literally see my father, right? Like I look like him. The older I get, the more I look like my memory of him when I was a child, right? I'm like, oh my goodness, here I am. My dad, if he was here, he would say, well, you're welcome. That's what he would say. Some of you have commented of writer, oh my goodness, there's a little Cody writing right there. And he is in many ways much like I was at his age. And of course, I would say to him, you're welcome. <laughs> Nevertheless, parents, your everyday actions your everyday habits, your responses, your non-responses, all of these things are discipling your kids to something. It's giving them some kind of inheritance, some kind of something. Listen, if you don't have kids yet, who you are becoming right now, it will matter to them one day. What you are saving up right now will matter to them one day, and I'm not talking about money. What you do, it leaves an inheritance to others. And the question that comes to me at this point, the question that comes to me for myself and for you, but definitely for myself, is what hope do I have? What hope do I have? I'm such a mess. What chance do any of us have to not be like most of these brothers most of the time? What chance do we have when I've already messed up so much? when I've already wasted so many years and so many opportunities, when I feel like I'm already behind. What hope do my kids have when I'm their father? But in the midst of this, poetic and prophetic blessing. I don't know if you've noticed it, but there's one verse that seems out of place. Did you see it when we read it earlier? In the very, very middle, verse 18, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. In the middle of blessing his son's in the middle of speaking prophetically what will happen to his grandchildren and his great-grandchildren, his great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren, here is Jacob, the patriarch, and he says these words, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. There's a salvation that Jacob is looking forward to. And that salvation is the ultimate source of the blessing. What is it? Well, I think to fully grasp it, we've got to go back to the beginning. In Genesis chapter 1, 26 through 28, we remember that God made man in his image, and then he blessed him and he gave him dominion. And man has these two objectives, to image God, to represent God, and to rule on God's behalf. And instead, Adam does not represent God. He doesn't represent him well. He's unfaithful to God's command and he fails to take to have dominion over the garden. He fails to protect it from the serpent. The consequences is a stunted fruitfulness. Difficulty in childbearing, difficulty in cultivating the soil, difficulty because of sin. 
And when God comes to Abram in Genesis 12, he tasks him with the same kinds of things. God will make a name for him, a people and a place for him. He will rule and through him, the world will be blessed. And that blessing and duty is passed on from Abraham to Isaac and then from Isaac to Jacob. But when Jacob's name is changed to Israel, it marks something different. The blessing then spreads not to one son, but to 12. And Judah is blessed with the rulership and Joseph is that model representative whose fruitfulness in verse 25 is described both in terms of blessing of water from above and below, fruitfulness in, in cultivating the soil, but also the blessing of the breast and the womb, fruitfulness in procreation. But if you know, as Jacob says, what will happen in days to come, then you know that Israel as a people group fail to hold up their end of the bargain. God makes them fruitful, but they end up being unfaithful. God gives them kings from Judah, but they end up in exile. And Jacob, Joseph, and Judah all prove to be insufficient. Parents, you are insufficient. I'm insufficient. We are insufficient. but a a greater Jacob comes. Not a lion cub of Judah, but the lion of the tribe of Judah, the mighty one of Jacob, the shepherd and the stone of Israel, who is the cornerstone, the true seed of Abraham, who crushed the serpent's head on the cross, the second Adam who walks the earth as the exact imprint of God, staying faithful and ushering in his kingdom. Joseph and Judah are two sides of a prophetic coin, two sons that prefigure the one and only son, the true redeemer turned ruler, the true faithful one who becomes the fruitful one. You see, Exodus 20, verse 5, it's followed by verse 6, and I want you to get this. Let me read the whole passage to you. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. But, but, showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You see, Jesus is the salvation Jacob waited for. And in Galatians 4, we're told that in the fullness of time when it had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. You see, Jacob is able to bless all of his sons because of Judah and Joseph's actions, bringing them back together. But the father, he is making many sinners into his children and blessing them with an inheritance because of the actions of his one and only son. People who are never part of his family are now being ushered into his family and given an inheritance. And listen, in Christ, he has more than enough to hand out. He need not save anything up because his blessings overflow. In Christ, they can overflow to you. And they can overflow to your children. You see, here's here's the point. All of God's children, all of his children are given an eternal inheritance of life. It's by God's grace that sinners are adopted. It's by God's grace that cycles are broken. It's by God's grace that fathers stay faithful. By our, but, but our inheritance in Christ, it's not, it's not just this earthly ancestry, it's by faith. In Christ, we have the opportunity to make Jesus known, not only to our family, but to our neighbors and to our coworkers and to the world. And then, and then as they go to their own families, then they are able to share Christ in faith with their children and their grandchildren. Listen, in light of this passage, I want us to consider... To whom do we have greatest opportunity to give an inheritance in Christ? To whom do we have the greatest opportunity to give 
an inheritance. I'm all for seeing the gospel go to the ends of the earth. But let's not miss seeing the gospel go to your children. I'm all for being on our knees praying for the next house over. But let's not miss being on our knees praying for the next bedroom over. Because this is, throughout Scripture, how God has done it. Fast forward a few years. Joshua has stood up as the people of God, as these 12 tribes have gone into that inheritance of the promised land. And he stood up and he said, choose this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we fast forward a few years and the story picks up in the next book, in the book of Judges, Judges chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Here's what happens. And I want to leave you with this final illustration. And perhaps a final warning. It says this, when Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his inheritance to take possession of the land. Praise God he had given it, right? In verse 7 it says, And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Praise God. But don't miss this. You see, Joshua's ministry and the ministry of the elders who were with him and all those who had seen the great works of the Lord and how, 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 what God had done amongst them, it, that ministry was effective and great among the people of God. The people that were there in that generation, they followed the Lord. Joshua's call worked. He said, I'm going to serve the Lord. You choose who you're going to serve. And the people of his day said, okay, I'll serve the Lord as well. But then verse 8 says this, and Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110 years. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Here's the important part. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Why? Why did they not know? It is not sufficient for you to serve the Lord and not tell your children what he's done for them. Or else we end up like the book of Judges with a generation who simply does whatever is right in their own eyes. You have been given an inheritance of eternal life in Christ. You will pass down something. You will pass down an inheritance. What will that inheritance be? Will it be an inheritance in Christ?